Since this is the last in the series, let's read together John chapter 2, starting with verse 1. And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And there were set there six water pots of stone, after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them to the brim. And he saith unto them, Draw out now and bear it to the governor of the feast. And they bear it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom, and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine. And when man hath well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee, and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. We discussed prior points concerning these groups of scriptures. We notice from this last verse that the disciples believed on Jesus not only because of the work that he did, turning the water into wine, but because of the word he gave. We know that this group of scriptures is connected to the prior chapter because we see in verse 1 the timeline is given three days later. Well, what happened three days before? Jesus Christ is meeting a disciple there and telling him that he saw him under the tree. This convinced this disciple that this indeed was the Messiah. This was the promised Savior that was to come. Jesus plainly told him, if you think you're amazed at that, you just wait. He gave him allusion to Genesis of the dream of Jacob, where there was a ladder descended from heaven down to earth, and angels were ascending and descending upon the ladder. That vision that was given Jacob and these words of Jesus to this disciple were telling him that the greater miracle was Jesus himself. Because Jesus himself was the revelation of God to man. Jesus said before, did he not, to many people, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Angels are messengers from God. We see many instances, examples of angels giving messages to man from God. Jesus Christ now comes as the Son of God, all man and all God, and he's described as what in John chapter 1? He's described as the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Then the Word descended to heaven and is giving us the direct revelation of God to man. So he is the miracle given to man. And because Jesus Christ changed the water into wine, it says the disciples believed on him. We see at the end of the Gospel of John, what well, tells us that 
The many miracles that Jesus Christ did are not all recorded. If all that Jesus did was written down, he said the books of the world could not contain them. So he gave us the miracles that God inspired him to write. And what was his purpose? His purpose was so that his children would believe on Jesus Christ. That was the purpose of the miracles. He always gave the word, remember? Then he backed it up with the work. And these two things together were for the purpose of having his disciples believe on him. Well, they already did believe on him, Brother Chris. Does he not tell us, you believers, believe on Jesus Christ? We need the stronger relationship with Jesus Christ every day that we live. And that requires repentance. That requires a want to. Another thing that was brought out before is the desire that we have. Remember, there's four levels of desire. Jesus Christ was invited to this marriage. His presence was desired. So, what are the four levels of desire? Remember, we do what we do because we have to. Or we do what we do because we ought to. Or we do what we do because we want to. And finally, devotion, we do what we do because we love Jesus Christ. Now, where are you on that scale? A lot of times, we're on the first step. Maybe we're not even on the first step. We don't want to, we don't want to do it, so we don't want it, so we don't do it. There are things in the Bible we're told we need to do. We have to do, are mandatory for us to do in order to follow Jesus Christ in spirit and in truth. What are some of them? We just covered some of them. We are to love our spouses. We are to submit one to another. We're to love our families. We are to pray. We are to go to church. We are to love the Lord our God with all our mind, soul. We are supposed to love Him with everything. But sometimes we just don't want to. We continue to serve Him on one of these levels. Now don't despair. I mean, I, I, I know I'm supposed to read my Bible, but I just don't want to. Well, the instruction is, read your Bible. I mean, uh, whatever you have to do, make time in your day. And certainly don't leave just the end of the day when you're in bed, because you'll read one sentence and you go to go to sleep. Reserve another time of the day in order to read the Bible. Put it on your Google Calendar. Put alarms on your smartphones if you have one. Or just write it down and just do it. Because if the Lord says, if you obey me, not only will you be blessed, he's going to increase your desire. If you continue to read your Bible, even though you don't want to, you're doing it as a disciple. You're obeying God. And soon he's going to increase that to, well, I do what I do because I ought to. Now I do it because I ought to. You continually read your Bible. And surprising, the Lord's going to increase your desire to, I do it because I want to. Now I want to read my Bible. I started off with I didn't want to, but I did it anyway. Now I want to read my Bible. And you continue to read your Bible. He's going to increase your desire to devotion. And now you read his word because you love Jesus Christ. You're not doing it just because you have some kind of you know, self-imposed want to. Now you're doing it because you love someone. 
His name is Jesus Christ our Lord. We have this marriage of Cana. We know that this is the first miracle of Jesus Christ. Very first one. Think about it. For 30 years, he's lived as a private person. He's done no miracles. He can't, he can't hide who he is, of course. As we see that Mary, when she needed advice, who did you go to? She went to her eldest son, Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ never gave bad advice. He wouldn't know how to. He never took a wrong step. He's never made a wrong decision. He's never stepped out of line. And so she goes to him for advice. Jesus Christ was invited to the marriage. His presence was wanted. His presence was wanted. He should be wanted in our lives. But as I read this, this, this bridegroom gets in trouble, doesn't he? This bridegroom is in trouble. We discussed that before that Jewish marriages are not like marriages we have here in the United States. In the times of Jesus, in the Jewish nation, if you wanted to marry a girl, that bridegroom would go to the girl's father. And then a covenant was made, an agreement, a contract. And that agreement was binding, that that man and that woman were going to be married. But they weren't going to be married right away. In other words, there was not going to be a marriage ceremony and feast right away. They were married in the eyes of the law and in the eyes of God. They were called husband and wife even though they had not yet begun to live together as husband and wife. She was still living with her parents. He was still living with his. But for this year-long period of time, he was the husband, she was the wife, yet there's no consummation of the marriage. So what? why is that? Why is there this year? Because the bridegroom needs time to build a home for his bride. He needs to provide a place for her. He has a job, hopefully, and he needs to be saving money, not only to support his bride, but he has to pay for this wedding feast. He is in charge of paying every cent of that. So he needs a full year. The full year to save up money to be married in the first place. People don't have money. Don't have any business getting married. Really. People have done it. I know. <laughs> I sort of did it too. But, <clears throat> but you know, uh, anyway, we'll get to that later. So, he needed money for a job. He needed money for this feast because he's paid for everything. Because he's also showing her parents and the community he has the means to support this woman. He's no ne'er-do-well. He has the means and the forethought and the planning in order to take care of this woman for the rest of her life. So that's what he's doing for this year. Then we get to the ceremony and the feast, and they're celebrating. And they celebrate a lot. They celebrate four days. And we gave you indications of why it would be lasting that long. I mean, just the wine that Jesus Christ made. He made about 120 gallons of it. And they ran out of all the wine they'd made before. Jesus is there at the wedding. He and disciples ask for wine. And the word comes out, we ran out of wine. This is not just an embarrassment for the bridegroom, since he's paying for everything. People are looking at him cockeyed. Because now, here's an indication 
This man doesn't plan very well. He maybe didn't save enough money. He didn't put enough money into this thing. Indication that he might not be able to care for this lady for the rest of her life. This is more than embarrassment. So if you read this story before and say, oh, well, they ran out of wine. No problem. If that happened to us, what would we do? Oh, we just take a, take a ride out to 7-Eleven. Buy, buy a few bottles of Boone's Farm or Shampipple or uh, some Mad Dog 2020 or whatever. And just bring it on back. Of course, you know I'm kidding. Yeah, for us, it doesn't seem any big deal. But that's no 7-Elevens around uh, Cana of Galilee at that time. Uh, this was a predicament. Mm-hmm. He's on the outs, isn't he? Now, he's supposed to provide for this bridegroom. Another point we need to make is that the only hope this bridegroom had was the intervention of the bridegroom. We all think we can take care of our own business. We think we can take care of the bride. If you're looking at me to take care of the bride, you're looking at the wrong guy. I need to have my responsibilities. I need to be leading as a shepherd. But if, I, but if you all think that we can all lift ourselves up by our own bootstraps, you're mistaken. Because you ain't got any boots or bootstraps to use in the first place. We all need the intervention of the bridegroom, and his name is Jesus Christ. He's the only one that can intervene. Now, we want Jesus' presence because we want him to turn our water into wine. We need advice. We need direction. Or we need help when someone's sick. We need it's just a miracle. Bottom line. We need our water turned to wine. Jesus Christ says, if you don't even want me in your presence, you don't even want me at your marriage, then uh, how can I possibly turn your water into wine? See, God is so merciful. Even when we reject Him wholeheartedly, sometimes He just comes in and saves the day. That's happened to me. Has it happened to you? And if I want Him in my life and intervening all the time, I want His presence at my family, my wedding, my celebration. I want Him there. The want to has to be there. Increase my desire, Lord, from a have to, from an ought to, to a want to. And I love Him. Increase it that much. So this bridegroom, this potential husband, this husband, he is uh, on the outs, isn't he? Do you ever feel like you're on the outside? You know, I, I began to think of the story... Uh, not the story, but the scripture over in Revelations chapter 3. Remember the church at Laodicea? The church at Laodicea is sort of describing our generation. They were rich and need of nothing. They were neither hot nor cold. They were lukewarm. I feel lukewarm most of the time. How about you? He said, I'd rather be hot or cold. I'd rather be one extreme or the other, other than just lukewarm. You're just too comfortable. We've just got so much in this country. We've got so we got so much going for us in our country. We got nothing else to do but complain about silly things. That's the reason we have a PC culture and all these other things people are nitpicking because we got nothing better to do. I mean, if we were struggling for a living or doing what we're supposed to do, we would have time for the silliness. But that's not the way it is. There's the church at Laodicea. He says, 
What does Jesus say? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Now, you may have seen Bible tracts. I think they're out of style now, but I used to see Bible tracts all the time. And I was looking at a waiter. People would give me a tip and give me a Bible tract along with the tip. Sometimes they'd give me a Bible tract instead of the tip. Many of these uh, Bible tracts would be coding Revelations 3.20 as the prescription or procedure in order to get eternal life. They picture Jesus Christ on the outside. They even have pictures. Him knocking at the door of your heart. And if you poor sinner will open your heart to Jesus Christ and let him in, you can gain eternal life. Who's at the door? Jesus Christ. Who's on the inside? Whose heart is it? The dead alien sinner that has no hope for heaven. Well, of course, that's so wrong. There's so much wrong with that. It's hard to begin. But one thing we know is that he's not writing to the dead alien sinner here in Revelation chapter 3. He's writing to the church at Laodicea. This is a called out body, Ecclesia, called out body of God's children forming the body of Christ here in a militant way on the face of the earth. So he's not writing to a dead alien sinner. He's not knocking on the door of the heart of the dead alien sinner. What he's telling that lukewarm church is they need to get going. Basically, it's the bottom line. And you need to get hot. You need to get hot quick. What's the prescription? He just says, I stand at the door and knock. So even though it's picked, the word, the word picture gives us Jesus Christ is on the outside, the person on the inside hearing the knocking is really on the outside. When you think of it, he's on the outside. He's on the outside. But Jesus Christ says, I knock on the door. A lot of people say, well, he's knocking on the door of the church. Well, actually, I don't know what he's knocking on. Maybe it's still at the church and the church needs that Jesus to come in and be a part of the church. Maybe his name is being used, but he's really not inside the church at all. And he needs to be included in order for them to get out of their lukewarm state. But if you read the context of that scripture, it's the individual. The individual says, it says, I, behold, I will knock at the door. If he singular he or she person inside hears Jesus knocking and goes and lets him in he says I will sup with him and he with me so this is a personal communion Jesus Christ is having with this person remember not a dead end sinner this is a child of God see we need Jesus in our lives we may be going to heaven but that's not the end of the story we need him intricately involved in our lives. We need to commune with Jesus Christ. We need to sup with Him and He with us. And this is a very individual thing. But what really gets me excited about that is that if you have a lukewarm church, if everybody out there looks like if they smile, they crack their face, and they can't sing Amazing Grace without uh, going to sleep, then they need Jesus. And if one person would open that door. That's the beginning of revival. You know, my friends, every church is on the edge of revival. Every church is on the edge of going dead. And every church is one step away from gaining great revival. Isn't that exciting? And he says, I just need one person. One person to start that off. To knock the door. I, he, Jesus Christ is looking for someone to stand in the brink, stand between the enemy. 
He's just looking for that one person to start this thing off. He says, once I get you all organized in a group and following the same way, then I might intervene. No, this is a very personal thing between you and the Lord. So the person on the inside, opening door, is really the one on the outs. He's really on the outside. Do you ever feel like you're on the outside? Or on the outside? Are you on the outs with your spouse? Are they on the outs with your kids? Are you on the outs with the world around you? Are you on the outs and with life in general? Well, invite Jesus Christ in. Ask Him to come to your wedding. But Chris, I've been married 50 years. Doesn't matter. <laughs> Ask Him to come in and commune with you and you with me. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, the Odyssean church, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. See, Jesus Christ wasn't in the church of Laodicea. The man on the outs was wanting Jesus Christ to come in even though the side that he was on was the inside. He's on the outs. You're in this building, but are you on the outs? If you are, you need to open the door. See, the man was in the church, but Jesus wasn't in the church. He needed to personally commune with Jesus Christ. He needed, he needed to want Jesus Christ to be in. In your marriage, in your church, in your family, above all, in your life personally, are you on the outs? Don't matter. Jesus Christ does the end for you. <laughs> Whatever your out is, Jesus Christ is your end. You could be strung out, left out, shut out, cracked out, whacked out, dropped out, smoked out, put out, stepped out, knocked out, freaked out, washed out, or burn out. It don't matter what else you have, Jesus is your end. Jesus can work it out. And He can turn your water into wine. But Jesus Christ's participation must be desired. Isn't that what this is teaching us? Step one, Jesus Christ's participation must be desired. And guess what? Jesus Christ was right there when the problem occurred. Nobody, ain't nobody had to go look for Jesus. <laughs> he was right there. Amen? You see, if you read the Bible, usually when people need help or need a solution to the problem, their solution was right there all along. Adam and Eve needed a covering. Where'd they have to go? It was right there. And God providing them a covering to cover their sin. I mean, you look at every character in the Bible that had a problem. And they were trying to look for help on the outside. God said... Abraham, you're going to have a child. Abraham got tired of waiting around and decided he was going to go on the outside to help his problem. God said, don't do that. The solution to your problem is right there all along. So my friends, I would encourage you, next time you have a problem, next time you have an issue, we all have issues, look around you and see if, not, if your solution is not right there. Because God, when He grants your petition, is not going to be pointing that way or that way. He's going to be pointing right there. Your solution was right there all along. Nobody had to go find Jesus. <laughs> he was right there. 
And He's right there at the door knocking. Whatever your predicament, whatever your problem, the Bible pattern is the solution is right there. The solution is right before you. So I encourage you next time to look right there in front of your face. See, there was the problem. The problem was they ran out of wine. The bigger problem was the bridegroom was seen as a failure. Now, do we know that there are certain prerequisites for marriage? First of all, before someone gets married, they got to have a job. Right? I'm never going to marry anybody that don't have a job to begin with. And Adam, before he had Eve, guess what? Adam had a drive. What was his job? To dress and keep the garden. See, what <laughs> millennials and men of today need, they need a little sha-na-na religion. Do they not? This is going to go over, over your young people's heads, but a lot of you old people like me know what I'm talking about. Sha-na-na religion? Sha-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na. Get a job. That's right. Sha-na-na philosophy. Biblical prerequisite is first, you've got to have a job. And number two, your spouse needs to be a believer. Before the wedding happens. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 says, Be ye not unequally yoked with unbelievers. That is prescription for disaster. If you say, we'll get married first, maybe something happened later. Now that does happen, because the Lord is gracious, isn't He? Now verse 16 says, For ye are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will dwell in them, and walk in them, and will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, don't be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. I'm there, because if you are my child, I dwell in you, I walk with you, and I will be your God, and you shall be my person. Amen. Now thirdly, that bridegroom has to have a place for his bride, does he not? Now Jesus Christ fulfilled all these prerequisites, didn't he? He says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. I got a job. I got a job and I performed that job and I was successful at that job. And all my children are going to be there with me at the end and I've got a place for my bride. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. What's that number 226 in the Bible? Uh, not the Bible, the hymnal. The bride of Christ, we have a day of blessing from the Lord. It says in the uh, chorus, it says, The turtle dove is singing now. What does that indicate? That indicates spring. The birds are starting to sing. The turtle dove is singing now. The winter's past and gone because it's the spring. You know where I'm getting at. Spring screams resurrection. The turtle dove is singing now. The winter's past and gone. Rise up, my fair one, and come away. I'll take you home to stay. Amen. Out of wine, public embarrassment at the least. But there's trouble. And we know that there's going to be trouble in our lives. We, we're always surprised when trouble crops up. The Bible tells us in John chapter 16, verse 33, In the world you shall have tribulation. Shall. You shall have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. What should we do? 
He tells us the prescription for trouble is in John chapter 2. If there's a trouble, what did Mary do? She went to Jesus. And number two, she did what he said. And that's your prescription for trouble too. If you're in trouble, if you have an issue, run to Jesus and then do what he say. That's it. That's the bottom line. Run to Jesus and do what he say. The question is, is Jesus your first response or is he your last resort? Usually it's our last resort. So run to Jesus, comply with his command. Number three, we have the problem. Verse four, we have the prohibition there. Verse five was the procedure. What did he say? Woman, what have I to do with thee? What have I to do with thee? Mine hour has not yet come. What did he do with his close apostles, his close friends, right before he went to the cross? Did he not sup with them? Did he drink wine with them? Jesus Christ is at this wedding with his five at that time, I believe. If you count them, there's five disciples there with him at the wedding. And what does he do? There's wine to be drunk. They ran out of wine. Jesus makes them wine. Drink with your disciples. My hour has not yet come. Listen, I have a divine path. I have a destiny. And it's taking me straight to the cross. I'm not calling you mother anymore because I'm a special person. No person like Jesus Christ upon the face of the earth ever before ever will be. Because he had a destination. A destination to save his people from their sin. I no longer have this earthly relationship with you as mother. Now you're a man or woman. And everyone that does the will of my father, they are my brothers and my sisters and my mothers and my fathers. Those are the ones that are closest to me. I'm on this divine path. And don't be asking for any backstage passes anymore because your special relationship with me, I have disciples. I have a family. And they're carved out of Adam's family. And it's based upon love. That's the bottom line, isn't it? Ceremony. It's a a celebration. But it's a wedding celebration. A wedding between man and woman, between the bride and the bridegroom, has to be based on love. Love. Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 30 says, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. God is not going to love us until he feels differently. He's going to love us to the end. When you think about it, God cannot love us anymore. And He can't love us any less. It is a perfect, everlasting love. Man, that's a whole... As Andy Griffith would say, that's a whole mess of love. Yeah. God loves us with an everlasting love. God is love. He is the source of love. He can and does love us. That's what He does. That's what He can do. That's what He must do is love us. But there are things that God can't do. Right? What are they? You know them. There's three things God can't do. He can't try. He can't deny. And He can't lie. But the the three things that God can't do also speak to His love for us. First one, He can't try. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8. I am the Lord... That is my name. I love that. I am the Lord. 
That is my name. And my glory will I not give to another. Isaiah 46 verse 9. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done. Saying my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. So God can't try, can he? He does it. He can't try. Number two, he can't deny. Of course, we get that from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful. He cannot deny himself. God is love. He has loved us with an everlasting love. Himself. He can't deny himself. So question, what is the essence of God? 1 John 4, 8. God is love. He can't deny himself. He can't deny that he loves us. Number three, he can't lie. Titus chapter 1 verse 2. In hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised us before the world began. So there's three things in there. He can't try to love us. He can't deny that he loves us. And he can't lie and say he doesn't love us. He loves us to the end. You know, uh, Isaac, when he, um, uh, he wanted to marry Rachel real bad. He really did. But he knew he had to have a job first. So when my boss offered him a job, he said, yes. And then he went to go get his bride. I think she's still got the splinters underneath her fingernails from the front porch. <laughs> but he went and got her. But he knew he had to have a job. He knew that he needed to be equally yoked with a believer. And he knew he had to have a place for her. So he got a place for her. So then he went and got his bride. Jesus Christ is the same way. He loved us with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, did he draw us to him. He chose us before the foundation of the world. He showed us He loved us by actually sacrificing Himself upon the cross. And then He showed us again how much He loved us because I have to go away. It's going to seem like a long time that I'm away from you. The bride and the, the bridegroom and the Jewish wedding had to wait a year, which probably seemed like an eternity. And here we are, brothers and sisters, as the bride of Christ. We're here waiting for the return of the bridegroom. We're waiting. And we have to be patient, don't we? We need to be patiently waiting. But we know He's coming. Because He can't lie. He can't lie. He says, if I go away, I'll come again. Where are you going, Jesus? Oh, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. I want to build you a place to live for an eternity. I'm going to attach it to my daddy's house. And so we'll all live together in peace and harmony and love.